Hi, have you thought about cow burps and farts recently? Yeah, me neither. Well, until our reporter Felix Thompson came around with a story of how dairy farmers in New Zealand could be penalized if their cows have too much flatulence. Now hear me out, this is a real story. And it starts to make sense if you realize that cows, when they burp and fart, they emit methane, a potent greenhouse gas that heats up our planet. And to be scientifically accurate here, most of that methane from cows is actually released as burps. Welcome to Living Planet. I'm your host, Sarah Steffen. Okay, now, why am I talking about this? Turns out the agricultural sector is a huge driver in releasing methane into the atmosphere. And pressure to reduce emissions in New Zealand's dairy sector has been growing. And New Zealand's dairy sector is huge. This 85% of our export earnings comes from agriculture and dairy is one is the biggest one of that. We used to be 65 before COVID, so the country needs us even more than they, they used to. That's Jacqueline Hahn, one of the farmers that Felix spoke to in New Zealand. So last year, the government there unveiled plans to introduce what's been dubbed the, quote, cow burp tax, a levy that will charge farmers for on-farm emissions starting in 2025. That's bad news for the farmers, obviously, because if they don't bring those emissions down, well, they've got to pay up. And it's not an easy fix. That much is clear. Well, there's been vaccines trialed for goodness knows how long, 20 years or so. Still haven't got a result yet. Bovidea that the Europeans use, it's not suitable for us because our cows aren't indoors and eating constantly from the same spot. Uh, yeah, a lot of them just aren't there yet. That's the big issue for us. Other Kiwi farmers have been trying to tweak their cows' output by feeding them some type of seaweed and even a probiotic drink called cow bucha. That all is supposed to help bring down gas in cows. But are these even viable options? And can they be scaled up? Reporter Felix Thompson, the one who pitched the story in the first place, went to investigate. And he started by checking out a farm in Australia that is running a trial with Fonterra, New Zealand's dairy cooperative, and a giant in the industry. Felix, take it from here. That noise is how you know you're in a dairy. That's the pulsators. So they're actually um, pulsating the vacuum in these cups. It's a windy day on Richard Gardner's dairy farm in the Australian island state of Tasmania, and the morning shift is in full swing. His 1,200 cows are lining up in groups to walk onto a milking platform, where they will stand patiently and rotate for the next seven minutes while attached to electronic milking pumps. They'll also have a chance to eat some grain from a trough, but feeding time is slightly different on this farm. Gardner is running a trial which he says could change the face of dairy farming, not only here in Australia, but thousands of kilometres away in New Zealand. So there's, a, there's a, um, a little pumping system and that pumps the oil over and then it comes down out of nozzle as the cows are getting fed. You can, it's just, um, there's a tube where the grain drops down and then the oil gets sprayed onto the, the grain. And what, the, the white tube? That's See the down. white tube and there's a little, little nozzle right on the front of it? Yeah, so we're feeding around um, 35 mils of oil per day and, and we're getting that pretty consistently. We monitor that so we've got some technology that tells us um, exactly how many feeds we do per day and how many mils of oil we feed. The oil in question has been infused with asparagopsis, a red seaweed that grows locally and which lab studies have shown can reduce methane emissions in cows by more than 80%. 
So far, Gardner's trial has shown promise. He says the seaweed oil has not affected the quality of the milk, nor the health of his cows. While his farm is located in rural Australia, on the island of Tasmania, the trial is being run in conjunction with Fonterra, a dairy cooperative representing 10,000 farms in New Zealand. The country only has 5 million people, but ranks as the world's largest export of milk, ahead of heavy hitters like the US and Germany. I'm hoping that we'll be there with Asparagopsis within the next couple of years. Look, we're not, I'm not saying that this is the only solution. We're completely open to whatever else comes along. Um, at the moment, it's the best option we've got, and we have to run with it. Asparagopsis is just one feed additive being investigated by Fonterra. For now, researchers say the feasibility of large-scale production of the seaweed remains a big question mark, and it's quite expensive. In New Zealand, the group is also running a pilot with researchers at Massey University, looking at the effects of a probiotic solution called Kalbucha. Early trials showed that calves who drank Kalbucha, a probiotic which is similar to the popular fermented drink Kombucha, emitted up to 20% less methane. Farmers are keeping a beady eye on these developments, particularly with the government having proposed an agricultural emissions levy, known as the cow burp tax, that could impose penalties on farmers from 2025. Nearly half the country's greenhouse gas emissions come from agriculture, generally in the form of methane, a short-lived but incredibly potent greenhouse gas. On this dairy farm in Danaverk, in the North Island of New Zealand, farmer Thomas Reed is developing his own plans to curb methane emissions on his farm of about 1,100 cows. Genetics is one approach. By purposefully breeding smaller cows, they're able to produce more milk, Farmers say they can lower methane emissions gradually over time. But he's also considering new feed additives. Other solutions that we're looking at is looking at reducing um, stock numbers on farm. So we've reduced our total head on farm by roughly about 7% over the last five years and while maintaining the same level of output and other things that we are looking towards is integrating some supplementary feed like the kombucha that Fonterra is doing and um, I, I can't remember what was being released out of Europe but there was a supplement tablet that you could integrate in which can reduce the methane. All of these things we're looking at just trying to figure out how we're going to integrate them into our procedures on farm. Should the burp tax be passed into law, a farm like this one, with about 1,100 cows, could have to pay as much as 50,000 New Zealand dollars each year, Reid says. That amounts to roughly 30,000 US dollars or 27,000 euros. Reid says he's aiming to limit the financial hit by adopting science-based solutions, though he accepts some farmers could get caught out. As an industry, we've got to be aware that this could be burdensome on some farmers. So, yeah, we're keeping an eye on it. We're learning to budget it. It would be uh, fiscally responsible for us to do, be looking at those costs coming on forward. Um, but the reality is, it's better off if we can offset the greenhouse gases and avoid some of these charges that could be coming brought down us. It's going to be better us as a business, it's going to be better off for us as an industry, and it's going to be better off for us as a country. Still, the equation won't be a simple one for Kiwi farmers. There are unique challenges facing their rollout in New Zealand. The country has a pasture-based system, so unlike in the US or places in Europe, cows hear roam fields and hillsides freely, chomping down on grass throughout the day. Here's Charlotte Rutherford, Director of Sustainability at Fonterra. 
methane is a really big issue and so we have to still look at these to think how we could still use them within a pastoral based context. Uh, the way that um, our animals, you know, they graze outside, you know, they're on grass all day so they're, they're selecting and eating when, when they want to in a, in a, um, in a paddock. Um, so, you know, when you have a, a feed additive that's really difficult to give to them you know, in that pasture-based system. So you think about when are, when are they in a position when you can control what they, what they eat? Well, that's probably when they're going to get milked within the farm dairy. Um, and then you've got to think about how would we, we, we feed that? How much concentrate or grain or, or other feed do we want to put into an already efficient system and the cost that that would do? In effect, New Zealand's farmers could have to overhaul their practices to use these new feed additives, and many, if not all, would have to spend thousands of dollars on new infrastructure, such as sheds and troughs. If they don't, they could be penalised. Some in the industry are worried that the new BERT tax is being rushed in, and could force many farmers to quit the business and seek out greener pastures elsewhere. Okay, so we run three dairy farms and a grazing block with some sheep running on it. Uh, we only produce around... This is Jacqueline Harm, a farmer from the Waikato region of New Zealand's North Island. Well, there's been vaccines trialled for goodness knows how long, 20 years or so. Still haven't got a result yet. Over deer that the Europeans use, it's not suitable for us because our cows aren't indoors and eating constantly from the same spot. Uh, yeah, a lot of them just aren't there yet. That's the big issue for us. They're not there yet. We just keep on trying to breed more efficient animals. It's a smaller animal that produces a lot of milk. Um, there's 85% of our export earnings comes from agriculture and dairy is one is the biggest one of that. We used to be 65 before COVID, so the country needs us even more than they, they used to. Jacqueline says there are a swathe of other issues facing New Zealand's farmers. But should the Calbert tax be introduced in the form the government proposed last year, the effects could be devastating. The New Zealand government forecasts that its cow burp tax proposal, or a similar on-farm emissions levy, would see a drop in dairy sector revenue of around 5% by 2030, and a 20% drop for the beef and lamb sector. But Hahn argues the impact could be much worse. don't want to go down that track. Um, there's lots of freshwater regulations happening in the country, which is having an effect on the amount of farms around. There's a lot of people exiting because it's just getting too tough. Uh, and of course, we've got high interest rates at the moment, and that is really hurting. So there's not much room to move, especially for another tax on top of everything else. If it happened now and the current interest rates continue, there's going to be a lot of people go out of business. Regardless, the 5% would be, that would be a rosy picture. There's a lot of people really pushed at the moment. Instead, Hahn suggests New Zealand should hold off on introducing any tax until science has created a viable solution, such as a methane vaccine or a bolus, a type of pill that could sit in the stomach. Or else, plenty of New Zealand farmers could go out of business. You're not able to do things. It's better to yeah, see how far we can get first. Once we have a solution everyone can use, then you can incentivise us to use it. Not having a solution is just shooting yourself in the foot. Felix Thompson, reporting from Auckland, New Zealand. And we stay with the topic of cows because, hey, why not? 
Elsewhere in Kenya, cattle herders are losing their cows because lions are attacking them. So apparently lions are less likely to attack those cows when they're looking at them. So one tweak to protect the cows was to, well, to paint eyes on cow butts. And while that may sound a bit silly, so far apparently none of the 136 cows taking part in the pilot project have been attacked. So there you go. Elliot Douglas has more with this report by Caroline Imlau. Cows wander around the edge of Maru National Park in Kenya, with large eyes painted on their rears. No, it's not carnival or Halloween here. These eyes aren't exactly for dress-up. They have a somewhat unusual practical function, to scare off lions. Cows usually make easy prey for the big cats as they graze in the bush. When the lion uh, is hunting, it doesn't kill anything that is looking at it. It has to stalk and surprise the animal from the back. So uh, the basic idea is that uh, uh, the lion will think that it's being seen, so it does not attack the animal. The number of lions in the park has shot up from 30 to 94 since 2015, and now they're coming into conflict more frequently with the cattle herders who want to protect their animals. Stray lions have even been spotted close to villages. But the Born Free Foundation is trying to convince cattle herders that the lions need to be protected too, even if they've ripped their cows to pieces. The painted eyes are helping, says one herder, Meshak Nkari. He's happy his animals are no longer being attacked, he says. The Born Free Foundation also researches big cats in the national park. Each day, project leader Alois Wambua Mwe and his colleagues go on a game drive to check out the animals. They've just discovered what they're calling Elsa's pack, three females with eight cubs. The reason why you see like uh, now they are about the same age is because uh, most times lions synchronize their birth. So they get pregnant uh, within the pride around the same time. So they're able to bring up the cubs together. Alois Wambua Mwe is proud that he can recognize all the lions in the park by their distinct features. The team records every detail meticulously. They can protect the lions better if they know how they behave, says Mwe. Australian conservation biologist Neil Jordan hit upon the idea of painting eyes on cattle to protect them during his fieldwork in Botswana. The method has been tested at a few sites around Africa. Herder Meshak Nkari lives with his cattle around two kilometers from the park. He says he has a good relationship with the people in the national park. If an attack happens, he lets them know, and they come immediately to chase away the lions. The herders have to hold their cows and try to keep them calm while they're being painted. The eyes need to be touched up every three weeks. Some 138 cows are part of the pilot project. Once the results have been evaluated and deemed successful, all of the cows in the area could soon be walking around with eyes on their butts. Elliot Douglas with a report by Caroline Imlau. We'll take a short break and then it's time to check on chickpeas. A little tweak here and there and it's said to do wonders for the soil. We want to find out if legumes can help make agriculture more sustainable and adaptable to climate change and whether they can also have a positive influence on climate change so that it's less extreme. So climate protection, in effect. 
we've heard about different kinds of tweaks that are supposed to help the environment one way or another, from tweaking cow feet in order to make them less burpy, to painting a pair of eyes on cow's butts in Kenya to help protect them from predators, and now chickpeas. So some crops are said to be good for the soil, as in they actually help improve it, such as beans and chickpeas. But these protein-rich sustainable legumes aren't popular everywhere, and they need a little boost to start. Reporter Anna-Marie Goretzky met up with some chickpea pioneers in Germany. Jennifer Collins has her report and can tell us a little more about how it all works. Jen, take it away. A few farmers are getting chickpea seeds ready for sowing on this farm in Fehlinden, a regional area near the German capital, Berlin. They pour mountains of seeds into a giant vat. Once it's full, they drizzle them with a liquid called rhizobia, that's a bacterium that helps the plant convert nitrogen from the air and reduces the need for fertilizers. Chickpeas, also known as garbanzo beans, aren't actually native to European soils, so they need that bit of extra help to grow here. Bernhard von der Mavitz runs the Gut Friedrichshof farm. He explains that they're hoping this simple tweak will enable them to grow sustainable, protein-rich plants from the legume family. With crops such as broad beans or peas, which are native here, the bacteria are already present in the soil. But with soybeans and chickpeas, the bacterial strain doesn't exist here yet. Legumes include other crops, like lentils, kidney beans, peanuts, alfalfa and clover. They're kind of special in the plant world, because they can produce their own fertilizer with the help of nitrogen-fixing bacteria in the soil. That's why crops like peas and beans were long a favourite with farmers in Europe. The plants actively improve soil, rather than leaching out nutrients. Out on the farm, Vondemavitz and his co-workers feed the chickpeas into a seeding machine. Behind them, a big empty field awaits sowing. These chickpeas can be grown without artificial fertilisers, which require a lot of energy to produce and also spew out a lot of emissions. If all goes well, the farmers can also do without artificial irrigation. The chickpea plant evolved in Middle Eastern climates and can get by on very little rainfall. Vondemavitz explains. We try to plant them around two and a half centimetres deep in moist earth to get the germination process going. And the advantage of this variety is that it loves dry soil. Chickpeas aren't really grown much in Germany, but that could change in the future as human-induced climate change is causing hotter and drier weather, making it more difficult to grow common crops such as wheat, barley and potatoes. Speaking from a dry, dusty field on a sunny day, farm manager Lucas Kasten explains they are preparing for the future. We are looking for legumes that we can easily market and ones that are more heat and drought resistant than broad beans or peas. That's how we arrived at the chickpea. It's got a lot of uses and it's nutritious. So sind wir eben zur Kichererbse gekommen. Man kann sie gut verwerten. Sie ist ernährungsphysiologisch gut. The first chickpea harvest of the year is already sprouting. A team from the German Leibniz Center for Agricultural Landscape Research are very interested in the chickpeas here. Crop scientist Maritz Reckling is studying them as a way to make farming more climate friendly. We want to find out if legumes can help make agriculture more sustainable and adaptable to climate change and whether they can also have a positive influence on climate change so that it's less extreme. So climate protection, in effect. Thanks to the bacteria on the root nodules, 
Chickpeas and other legumes can create so much nitrogen in the soil that even the next plants grown on that field benefit, reducing the need for problematic artificial fertilisers. Right now, though, legumes are only grown on about 2% of German cropland. In recent decades, corn, grain and rapeseed have become so widespread that many legumes are imported, particularly soybeans. Crop scientist Reckling hopes that will change. I'd love to see legumes cultivated on, say, 10% of the arable land here. But of course, only if it's economically viable for the farmers and if there's a market for it. In Rwanda, for example, beans are grown on a large scale because they're a staple food and feature in almost every dish. Elisabeth Berlinghof, also from the Agricultural Research Centre, believes locally grown, packaged and processed legumes, like the chickpeas on this farm, could be a vital part of a sustainable food system. And they're a good protein-rich alternative to emissions-intensive meat, she adds. It makes total sense from a nutritional standpoint to cut down on meat and increase plant production. That's where a legume, as a regional sustainable source of protein, comes in. It's grown where it's needed and will be a great solution. Even with the advice of crop system scientists from the Agricultural Research Centre, however, selling the product is proving a challenge for the farm run by Bernhard von der Mavitz. One of his barns is still filled with giant white bags of organic chickpeas from his first three years of cultivation. It's not easy to shift this stuff right now. The price just isn't yet what we'd need to break even. But it's pioneering work, we know that. One person counting on the chickpeas, though, is Emily Wegner. She founded her chickpea snacks company in the eastern German city of Leipzig just a few years ago. In the food processing facility of her business, she shows us the chickpea snacks she's brought to the market. Crispy, salty and herby. Wegner says she's glad to have found a climate-friendly business model. Climate change often leaves me feeling helpless. All you ever hear is how awful everything is going to be, and you rarely get any specific ideas for solutions. I found something with my business where I feel confident that I'm on the right path. And I'm promoting a group of plants that has the potential to counteract climate change. The next batch of crunchy, climate-friendly chickpeas is being prepared for delivery to a big German supermarket chain. Emily Wegner is also hoping that demand for all varieties of legume will catch on in Germany and that farmers will be able to sustainably transform their fields while the time is ripe. Jennifer Collins with a report by Anna-Marie Goretzky. Now, another tweak for the environment was to stop burning mangrove wood to make salt. That was a long-standing practice with women on the edge of a national park in Ivory Coast. They used the wood from the mangrove forest to boil seawater down to salt. And now, well, just a little tweak and they can still harvest salt, but don't need fire to do so. Here's Evelyn McLafferty with the details, with a report by Clelia Benat and Jürgen Schneider. On a beach overlooking a vast South Atlantic Ocean with palm trees behind, local women in Ivory Coast are collecting seawater in plastic buckets. These women are salt producers and ocean water is their raw material. They each help to carry the water and then funnel the seawater into larger containers. 
Traditionally, salt production was brought about by boiling the seawater over wood fires until just the white crystals of salt were left. But firewood collection has had a devastating impact on the local mangrove forests and the women's way of working has changed for the better. Fenced in by tall bamboo, a large square patch of land holds a number of bathtub-like structures. This area is just beyond the sand dunes. Here, the women pour the water they've collected from the sea into what looks like flat bathtubs and let the water evaporate naturally. This new way of doing business is thanks to the input from an alliance of environmental organisations called AfriEvolve, which helps rural communities to live more sustainably. Micheline is one local salt producer. She stands by one of the bathtub-like structures. The water has evaporated and the salt is there. It looks like mushy white rice and is gathered on plates that look like those traditionally used for gold mining. Micheline explains that initially this new method of separating salt was quite a steep learning curve. At first we thought it was a little strange. How can water in the basins turn to salt under the sun? We found it a bit hard to believe, but I told my friends that we had to join the project to see how it would turn out, and we did. And the day we saw the salt, we were so pleased. This specific village lies between the ocean and a lagoon on the edge of the Azagni National Park. Fishing used to be the main source of income here, but the small wooden fishing boats lie idle with blue fishing nets no longer in use. Fish stocks have dwindled and now the new salt harvesting technique provides a steady source of income. And importantly, with wood no longer being burned, the mangrove ecosystem, a breeding ground for fish and a vital supply of food for families, is being protected. Walking into an office, we meet the coordinator of the AfriEvolve project in the village. His name is Maurice Tano Kamalan. He says action was urgently needed because Azagni National Park was under threat from human encroachment. And he says local communities had to learn new skills to deal with climate change. When we set up the project, it was clear that women should be involved. When women are involved, they end up involving everyone else. It means the men are more or less obliged to assist them, and the children also help out. So by involving women to a great extent, you engage the whole family in the project. 50 people are now involved in the AfriEvolve project, and they've each involved a further seven people at least. Efforts have resulted in the saving of mangroves in the south of the Azagni National Park and encroaching on biodiverse land in the north has been halted. Deep in the lush green shady National Park, wooden beehives have been set up, 175 of them to be exact. The bees produce most honey when left undisturbed, we're told. This is the best argument for leaving the habitat intact, says Kajatu, who's president of the Women Beekeepers. The hives help us protect the park because we only come to the entrance to remove the honey without harming the bees or cutting the trees. The various different projects from AFRI Evolve in collaboration with locals are empowering communities and helping them to become resilient as problems associated with biodiversity loss and climate change emerge. Maurice Tano Kamalon, the coordinator of AFRI Evolve in the region, says the role women have played 
has been central. Here are communities of women, women's associations that are fighting for economic support and survival, while at the same time managing to respect the environment. The results are impressive. Evelyn McLafferty with a report by Clelia Benat and Jürgen Schneider. That wraps up our episode on how little tweaks can mean huge benefits for the environment. This episode was produced with the help of studio director Wiebke Tegtmeier, studio techs Christian Stäter and Jan-Luca Wald, and by me, Sarah Steffen. Thanks so much for listening. If you want more content from us, check out dw.com slash livingplanet or search for Living Planet wherever you get your podcasts. Until next time, bye for now. <laughs>